0: after hearing our ensemble last Sunday night and uh, putting the challenge to the group that was gathered there that if you've ever wanted to sing, singing with these folks is just a delight. And so uh, I invited people to join our choir program. Uh, It may be a little intimidating to sing with them, but uh, I've got to tell you, when I'm singing the hymns up here, I feel like I'm the fifth in this uh, group, and it's always a delight to hear their voice over mine. This summer is a time for growing things, and it seemed like a good time for us as a congregation to take a look at the fruits of the Spirit, to assess what kinds of things are growing in our own lives and why. Why? So for the duration of our 10 at 10 this summer, we're going to be looking at these nine fruits of the Spirit that come to us from Galatians. This is the sort of the overview text for the entire summer, but we'll be looking at a variety of texts within that context throughout the next several weeks. So I invite you to listen now For God's Word as it comes to us from the fifth chapter of the book of Galatians, the fruits of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you join me in a word of prayer? loving and gracious God we do thank you that by your work in our lives different kinds of qualities begin to emerge where we're selfish we become selfless where there's hatred and envy love begins to express itself. We come before you this morning and throughout this summer and ask that you might grow within us the fruits of your own spirit. Speak to us now as only a living God can. We pray in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. This imagery and imagery elsewhere in the biblical narrative tells us that there's something natural about the qualities of faith that become part of our lives. It happens naturally. When a tree is planted in good soil and there's enough water and there's enough sunlight, it produces whatever the tree has in its DNA might be apples, or it might be lemons, or peaches, bananas, nuts, avocados. In the right soil, given the right conditions, fruit naturally appears. Our text today proclaims that that same natural process is true for faith. In the right soil, with the right conditions, our lives will produce fruit. Qualities like love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self control. Now, by contrast, I think too often our lives may not exhibit these qualities we're hassled, we're often selfish, we're stingy, we're unkind we're consumed with compulsions that are destroying our health and sometimes our families so instead of the fruit of the Spirit we become more like Christmas trees cut off at the roots we dress ourselves up to appear to have fruit but it's really only decoration So we hang whitened smiles on our faces to appear kind rather than to actually have to be kind. We make sure our name appears on the lists of contributors for the charity, but it's only a token contribution. We focus on the appearance of things rather than the things themselves, and we hope people won't really notice that we're only a Christmas tree and not a fruit tree. So this summer, we're going to be talking about living the fruitful life. Living the good life. In the very first psalm, we hear that those who delight in the law of the Lord and who meditate on God's ways are like trees planted by streams of water which yield their fruit in its season and their leaves do not wither In all they do, they prosper. How might we plant our lives and provide the right conditions for our lives so that they do not wither, but instead prosper? I've been reading a book recently entitled When Jesus Came to Harvard. Making Moral Choices Today by Harvey Cox. In it, he says, there's a new interest in moral reasoning on our college and university campuses. For all the intelligence demonstrated by students on SAT tests and through their grade point averages, there seems to be a definite dearth of moral decision-making. Students and later graduates and alums have demonstrated a lack of ability to be honest and kind and generous and caring towards others. Some have used their education only for self-advancement, sometimes even at the expense of others. So universities like Harvard have rejiggered their undergraduate curriculum to include required courses in moral reasoning. Faculty were asking themselves the question, why are so many well-educated people doing such bad things? Was something missing from their education? After all, they had a good command of the humanities and the sciences. They could describe in detail the causes of the Civil War. They could write coherent summaries of chemistry experiments but it was becoming evident to faculty that more and more students and graduates were unable to apply their education in a morally responsible way scientists were fudging the data of their experiments doctors were more interested in profits than they were patients Lawyers were doing illegal things to win a case, and business people were engaged in insider trading or obtaining huge bonuses for themselves by churning their clients' portfolios. So according to Professor Harvey Cox, who was asked to teach a course at Harvard entitled "Jesus and the Moral Life," was part of the new curriculum. And he was quite skeptical at first that the classroom was the right place to teach moral reasoning, moral values. They're better taught in families and in the home and in places like this at church. In fact, he did a review of the curriculum at Harvard and he found that the word Jesus was last used in the curriculum at Harvard by a professor, George Setayana, who left Harvard in 1912. For 70 years, the word Jesus didn't appear in any of the curriculum. Schools of higher education, like Harvard, in many cases established by churches had become more secularized and more specialized. Science, rather than theology, had become the queen of the disciplines. Objectivity was believed to be the only legitimate way to teach anything. And religion, it was thought, could never be taught objectively. But what surprised everybody was just how students were interested in these courses. Within a few years, over 700 students, undergraduate students, annually enrolled in Professor Cox's course. Many of these students lived by the dictum, live and let live. But they were uncomfortable with it. Some things they knew were just plain wrong, like torturing children. Everybody could agree but they resented anyone who imposed any standards upon them. Harvey Cox described them as benevolent but uncomfortable relativists. And in the class, they began to realize that with 250 million people all doing their own thing, with separate moral codes, you can't run a country it's an impossibility. And worldwide, with 7 billion individuals living any way they want to, it just creates an unlivable world. At some point, the rubber has to meet the road. At some point, we have to make moral choices. And it has to be based on some foundation, some value system that we embrace, what will guide us. will it be the utilitarianism of John Stuart Mills? will it be our own hedonistic urges? will our faith serve as the ground and the foundation of our moral actions in the world? now there's nothing more troubling than someone who talks a great game but when it comes to how they live their life and the moral choices they make, they prove to be a disappointment. How many pastors have preached about morality only to be discovered doing some things they publicly disparage? Sexual promiscuity or dishonesty financially. Pastors have been found in many compromising situations. How many politicians have claimed the moral high ground, only later to be caught accepting bribes or involved in clandestine affairs or making deals for their own political survival? Come on, it's easy to point the finger. How about you and me? How are we spending our time? What do we do with our money? What values do we pretend to embrace that really consistently in what we do and say and the way we act in the world, we undermine? I'll never forget one occasion many years ago when we were living on the East Coast and a young woman who was in her freshman year at a college there was unable to travel across country because of the expense for Thanksgiving. So we invited her to join us at our home for the Thanksgiving weekend. During that weekend, we took her into New York City to take her on a tour of the Big Apple to see the Statue of Liberty and other sites. We were seated together at a restaurant there in Holly- called Planet Hollywood. And when my wife stood up to distribute the appetizer's fairly between all the children including our guest she reached across the table and knocked over a glass full of red wine directly into my lap I backed away from the table and I said golly (laughs) no that's not what I said Something came out of my mouth that most ministers aren't even supposed to know about. (laughs) And when I gathered myself, I looked across the table at that young woman, and I'll never forget the look on her face. How could this person who she so admired utter something like that? I think we all want to see somebody who has figured out how to live with integrity in the world. Who not only proclaims values, who lives them consistently. I'm not sure she ever recovered from that experience when in a moment of unrestrained exuberance and astonishment, Paul here in Galatians is talking about the freedom that we have as followers of Jesus Christ. And as is typical of his writing, he begins with the indicative, but he always moves to the imperative. He begins having established the foundation for right living in the world, but then he always turns to how we then should live in the world theology is not meant to be theoretical it's meant to lead to ethical living. Nothing's more practical than good theology. And now that we no longer live under the weight of broken laws wondering constantly whether we're good enough We now are to be guided by the Spirit of God making His home within us. And we are to surrender ourselves to the power of that Spirit so that the fruits of that Spirit become more and more evident in our lives. I like the way that John Stott, who's a British theologian and pastor, put it. He calls this the unforbidden fruit. And it's no coincidence that the first of the fruits is love. In fact, love, as the first of these fruits, provides the ground for all other eight qualities or fruits to become part of our lives. It has the pride of the first place love is the preeminent Christian grace elsewhere as you probably know Paul writes if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love I am nothing love is patient and kind love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude does not insist on its own way faith hope and love abide these three and the greatest of these is love. One preacher who preached on 1 Corinthians 13 the great chapter of love in the New Testament described it as love with its work clothes on. So let me ask you this morning Who is the most loving person in your life? Who has been the person for you that demonstrated faithful, consistent love in your life more than anyone else? It might have been a parent, a mother or a father. It might have been a grandparent. It might have been a spouse, perhaps a sibling, perhaps just a great friend. Now let me ask you this, with that person firmly in mind, what was it about them that mattered most to you? Was it how they looked or was it how they acted? was it how wealthy they were or was it how they treated you was it their great accomplishments and success in life or was it their selflessness and their concern for and about you Well, go and be like that In the Gospel of John, as Jesus is teaching his disciples, he says this to them. You did not choose me. I chose you. And I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. now no one in the history of the world has been more consistently and faithfully loving than Jesus Christ our Lord he gave himself for us all so as we approach our Lord and we approach this table which he has prepared for us let us approach him and receive him And let us let Him have His way within our lives that we might begin to show and express the fruit that comes from a life lived in His presence. Friends, this is the feast which He has prepared. This has throughout the centuries been known as the Feast of Love. So let us prepare our hearts to receive the spirit of Jesus Christ our Lord Amen our children are joining us now for They too are welcomed here at the table. We gather as the family, the extended family of Christ, to receive what Christ alone provides. Friends, this is the joyful feast of the people of God. They'll come from east and west and north and south to sit at table in the kingdom of God. According to the Gospel of Luke, it was when The disciples were with Jesus, that he took bread, he broke it, and he gave it to them, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him for who he was. All who humbly put their trust in Christ, who are truly sorry for their sins and desire to be delivered from the burden of them, are invited and encouraged to come to this table, that you might receive refreshment, and you might receive nourishment for the journey ahead. So let us come and receive what God has prepared for us. Shall we pray together? Almighty and gracious God, we do praise you. And in this summer season, we give thanks with joy. We bless you for creating the whole world, for your promises to your people, and for Jesus Christ in whom your fullness dwells. Born of Mary, He shares our life. Eating with sinners, He welcomes us. Guiding His children, He leads us. Visiting the sick, He heals us. Dying on the cross, He saves us. Risen from the dead, He gives new life. Living with you, He prays for us. He loves us. And so with thanksgiving, we take this bread and this cup. And we proclaim the death and resurrection of our Lord. Receive this, our sacrifice of praise. Pour out your Holy Spirit upon us, that the fruits of that Spirit might be evident in us and through us. Pour them out here upon this meal, that it may be a communion in the body and the blood of our Lord. Make us one with Christ and with all who share this feast. Unite us in faith. Encourage us with hope. Inspire us to love that we may serve as Your faithful disciples until we feast at Your table in glory. We praise You, eternal God, through Christ Your Word made flesh in the holy and life-giving and loving Spirit now and forevermore. Amen. Friends, it was on the night in which Jesus gathered with his disciples in the upper room that he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples as we, ministering in his name, give this bread to you. And he said, take, eat, for this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after that Passover meal, he took the cup the cup of blessing, the cup of redemption and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is given for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink ye all of it. Take the bread as you receive it. Drink the cup as you receive it. You may wish to say, the bread of heaven, the cup of salvation. Come, these are the gifts of God for the people of God, partake and be thankful.